Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Michael Garfola. We're at uh, Martin Woods Winery, McMinnville. Uh, it's March 3rd, 2020. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, first question for you, most important question. Uh, why wine? Uh, I feel like to, to get into why I am where I am now doing production, etc., you, you have to trace kind of all the way back uh, for me. And, uh, and it always <clears throat> it, it always goes back to what my job has always been, and that's been in the restaurant business. Um, I I mean I've been in the restaurant business. I'm still in the restaurant business technically. I, well, that's my job um, since I was essentially 17. So it's just the only thing I've ever been good at, quite honestly. Um, but I was I got into wine as a buyer um, at a little kind of red sauce Italian strip mall Italian restaurant in, in, in Phoenix. Uh, it's kind of a suburb of Phoenix uh, in the mid-2000s. That's when I first started waiting tables and had a, you call it a wine program would be, would be generous, but it was just like they, you know, I was tasked to order the wine for the restaurant. And that's where I had to like start understanding what wine was. I mean, Honestly, I had, I did not I was not a wine drinker prior to that, um, but that was when kind of the bug I guess started, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, spent a little bit of time in Italy after I left Phoenix before moving to Santa Fe, and um, became really luckily kind of fell backwards onto um, the sommelier position at a restaurant called the Compound. Um, Mark Kiffin's restaurant on Canyon Road, and that's and I totally didn't deserve that job at the time, but I that's when I studied for my first SOM um, level, whatever mm-hmm. the certification level, nothing nothing fancy past that, um, but essentially I became a wine buyer. You know, I moved to Portland in 2007. <clears throat> and really one of the reasons why I moved to Oregon specifically uh, was because of the wine country and it was probably the wine country as a as a buyer that I was that I think spoke the most to me I guess um, I remember drinking just wines at the compound and just feeling like Oregon was different than California or Washington and like especially what that restaurant was getting mm-hmm. you know I felt like the Oregon wines were more my speed and I felt like Portland was also on the rise at that point it was well quite honestly it was one of the only places on the west coast that you can afford to live Seattle was too expensive and the area is too expensive and I lived in LA and I still hated LA at that point I've changed my position on Los Angeles at this point but um, but moved here and I, you know, just was in restaurants and that's, again, as a sommelier and, you know, on the GM side uh, of, of things uh, for years. And I think, you know, at Tabla Mediterranean Bistro, 
uh, it was no longer there in Genoa. It's no longer there, but old, old school restaurant. Uh, and now I'm currently at Beast, where I still, you know, buy the wine. Um, so I've had three jobs since living in Portland. But I think at a, at a certain point with a lot of buyers, you, as you get older and you're like, I, wanna, I don't want to be, because I, you know, I went down the GM route and that didn't work out. You know, it never works out. It's like anybody who's like ever interested in being a GM for a restaurant, text me because it's a bad idea. Um, but it can be great, but not in my experience. Uh, I was just not good, for, good at it. Um, but uh, you, as you get older in the business, in the restaurant business, you're like, okay, what am I going to do? Um, long term you know what what where what are my passions you know when evan from martin woods moved here in 2009 he started working at Belpont and he was working on production and that was my first exposure to productions like you know being on the sorting line at Belpont, you know 2000 god 2009 2010 maybe um and had great had great experiences with with those guys with brian and jill and Evan, and it was just fun. Mm -hmm. um, I staged for Bow and Arrow. I think you also interviewed mm -hmm. for Scott mm -hmm. in 2012 and 2013. Um, and then, you know, was partner at a smaller label called Holden, and I, you know, have segued out of that. And, and ultimately, when I was still with Holden, I, I started taking classes uh, at Chemeketa. Um and the the intention originally was to to take winemaking classes mm -hmm. um, was to take enology classes and my first class um, and my teacher was Jessica Cortell right um, and it was a vine physiology course so it was like the first thing you take right um, and I I've immediately was more drawn to the idea of viticulture um, and taking viticulture classes than I was enology classes. Um, they had, you know, they had the cool test vineyard there, and you know, I took this the the vineyard series where you you have five rows of something and you screw it up all year, and you know, you hopefully learn a lot. I feel like I did, and I was Jess's last class, I, I believe, um, and she was a great, you know person to have as your teacher you know she's just a wealth of information and it was you know I've learned a lot and I could still text her if something looks weird in the vineyard I'm like what the hell is this you know <laughs> so it's nice um, so that was the route I went um, so I was just working at Beast and going to night school you know uh, at Chemeketa and took you know what I considered I think the the pertinent classes I mean I didn't go to OSU. I didn't get a, you know, I didn't get the associates or, or the degree or whatever. I mean, I missed a couple typing classes, I suppose. But I feel like I took what uh, was necessary for me to kind of be pushed off, you know, the dock, and you know, I could take it from there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when, simultaneously, the idea for Cutter was kind of, you know, brewing. You know, it was that's where it all started and. Um, that 2017 was my first vintage. So and I, I think I, I finished school or I finished taking classes, I should say, in 2016 of, I think that's right. Um, and uh, yeah, like summer, I think, or spring of 16. Anyway, anyway, as I was getting 
out of school, um, I emailed Brian McCormick of Idiot's Grace and Mosier, and we had been working with this little block of Dolcetto for a few years uh, with Holden. Um, but I, and I didn't even mention it when I emailed him. I, I simply said, "Hey, I'm getting out of you know wine school, so to speak, and I want a little test vineyard where I can set up my practicum for a year and like place where I can work in the vines, do a lot of the handwork, um, and buy the fruit." And that's it. I just want to participate in it. I don't want to just buy fruit, you know, um, because of the viticultural background. That was like that's half of it for me is being in the vineyard. Um, and McCormick got back to me. And it's like, yeah, you could, you could take over that Dolcetto block. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> you know, it was really it was really lucky. I think he's really he was shifting everything over to his estate at that point. So it was it was just perfect timing. It was just dumb luck, you know that I got that, um, and that, that started, that was the first vintage, was 2017, and just that little block of Dolcetto. Now I have a second vineyard that I work in and buy fruit from in, in the Dalles, mm -hmm. and called Hillside. So before we get into that, I want to back up a little bit to your to your restaurant experience, and I'm especially curious. Uh, you, you mentioned sort of being hired as a psalm when you maybe didn't deserve to be a psalm yet. I'm curious about learning to build uh, a wine list, learning to appreciate wine, and, and build a restaurant wine list. How did you How did you do that? How do you build a restaurant wine list? Well, I mean, there's not just one way to do it. That's certainly true. I feel like, you know, I was I think I was talking about this last night or something like that. You know, just. I feel like it's important to um, not educate people as guests. I think you want to give people what they want. Ultimately, you want the guests to have a good experience. Um, but you also want to surprise people sometimes. And I think I feel like whether that's a retail shop or um, a restaurant, a som or whatever, I feel like the you know if a guest has an ex experience that they like, oh crap, I've never had a wine from this region before in my life and you know it was unlike anything I'd ever had in my life you know and, and then the next time they come they have a, a, another experience similar to that um, and so and there's you know in Portland we've we've been very lucky um, in I think there's a number of really fantastic uh, local distributors that bring in some really interesting wines from from all over the world from you know to France, to Italy, to Spain, to Germany, to Hungary, you know. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot happening, there's a lot of good wine to choose from, which it wasn't always that way in Portland. I mean, it was, there. there's a lot of things that are still being represented today, being sold in, in Portland and in Oregon, but the diversity of what we get um, is so much better. So I think long story short, you need to taste a lot, you know, you need to have an open mind um, you need to, you know, I feel like um, not be satisfied with being stagnant. And I feel like, you know, when I first got into wine and was buying, it was like, okay, you had, you have a restaurant wine list, it's the compound or it's table or whatever, and, you know, well, I've got to have a Pinot by the glass. Well, I've got to have a Chardonnay by the glass. I've got to have a Cabernet by the glass because that's, I don't know. I just feel like that's what, you know, you're supposed to do, right? That's what McCormick and Schmick says. So it's like, that's what I need to do. You don't know any better, you know? And I feel like you could still give people the experience they want, 
by selling them a wine from Spain, for example, or wherever, uh, that could still hit all the points that somebody who wants that cab wants to hit, you know. And but then that's, and I think for me, that's the the fun of it is it's like, yeah, I gave you what you want, but you've never, you didn't even know it. And I think that was the kind of the philosophy I've always, I still take uh, at Beast and how I've always constructed my tasting menus over the years. And, you know, something familiar, but something unexpected is, I guess, how I've always done it. Not that I'm super cognizant of it always when I'm doing it, um, but that's just, the, that's kind of where I naturally land, mm -hmm. I guess. Before that, you mentioned uh, being kind of bitten by the wine bug at a kind of an unlikely place with a, with a kind of a small, smaller wine list. What about wine intrigued you at that point? I remember the first bottle of um, Canetto I had from uh, an Alianico from Basilicata in southern Italy. And I'd never heard of Alianico. And it kind of like locked something into me, like where it was like, I've never heard of this grape. It's not Cab, it's not Pinot. I can't really pronounce it very well. I'm from Indiana, I'm dumb. Um, but it tastes unlike anything I've ever had. Uh, from yeah, this D'Angelo Canetto that, you know, um, I think is, you know, f for me, I was just really lucky to have some of those wines, you know, back in the day. Um, but I think that was where it started, was it doesn't have to be, you know, what, you're taught. Mm -hmm. It can be what you know, what you find for yourself, and what you explore. And mm -hmm. you know, I think that's more important than anything. And is having like it's better to have an ex a, you know spirit of exploration in wine than I think it does to be like a master sommelier and like know all the coastal regions of China. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> cool. You can do that at a party. That's a good trick. You know, whatever. Um, anyway, that's that's where I landed there. Tell me about the experience of, of learning wine then uh, without, with, without the formal education. Before, you, before Chemeketa, when you're still in Santa Fe and you're, and you're a psalm and you're, and you're kind of learning and tasting. Tell me about what you, how, how you experienced it. How, how did you go about learning? Well, in books. I mean, I read wine books. And that was the first thing. I always felt like, you know, especially early on like that when, it was, when I was still pretty rough around the edges. Not that I'm very refined these days, but... Um, I feel like I would be just cooking dinner and you know you'd have wine open and you'd have the wine encyclopedia by Tom Stevenson open at the same time reading about the region you know you know that you're drinking in your glass and I think you know you, you do that enough that's that's one element um, you know outside of a number of kind of just textbooks and not textbooks per se but like mm -hmm. Just wine books that you know you all, you know that's you you gotta you gotta get into it you know a little bit um, and now I mean this was before like I mean I don't want to say internet because the internet existed then but I was not as it wasn't this it was before iPhones and everything was like so connected that way so you still like you know you had all your big books and you know you carried them around everywhere your wine atlas your wine encyclopedia you know. Um, whatever, whatever you're reading. Um, and I feel like that was a part of where I, you know, how I, I guess built the vocabulary and the database, if you will. Mm -hmm. But I remember when I was taking my certification level SOM uh, from Master Court in 2007, um, 
I remember when I was leading up to the test after I'd passed the, the very first introductory class, um, I remember making my wine reps blind taste me on everything they were bringing me for the week. You know, it was just our regular appointments, but I had everybody brown bag everything. And you know, you do that for you know, three, four months prior to your exams and it's gonna help. Um, and I was lucky I had a program that I could do that mm -hmm. with at the time. It would be probably a little harder. Uh, or, well, I mean, I guess you'd figure out how to do it, whatever is put in front of you, but that's what I had, so that's what I, you know, that's what I did. Um, What's changed for you as a wine buyer from that, from that to what you do now uh, with Beast? Uh, are you still looking for a similar, you mentioned like kind of surprising people with familiarity almost. Uh, is that still kind of what you're looking for now or what are you looking for when you're buying wine? I mean, when, when I do the pairings of Beast, um, you know, I'm, it's six courses. The menu changes every two weeks. Um, and obviously people come there for the experience of Beast and it's people come from all over the country and sometimes all over the world to, to dine there. Um, and so you, the, the food is on a, a really high level, obviously. Um, and so I just want the wine to be on that same level uh, as well. And that's kind of the goal. But maybe more importantly, you know, I'm looking for, you know, a perfect complement to every dish. And I go about that in, in different ways, ultimately. There's different styles, I guess, of how to pair food and wine. Um, but ultimately, I'm trying to, you know, accentuate, you know, the dish. And it's like really so much that if you don't get the wine pairings when you come to Beast, you're really missing half of it. I'm biased, clearly. Uh, but that's what, you know, that's what they pay me to do, so. Are you looking for, are there certain regions you try to represent? Are there certain size wineries you try to represent? Or is it really just right wine for, for the food? I mean, my philosophies and what I buy are, are, can parallel how I make my own wines. You know, it kind of come from that, you know, low intervention side or whatever you want to call it. I mean. I don't want to say natural um, because that's not the whole truth and that's kind of where I land a lot of times but it's not a prereq necessarily. Um, I don't think all natural wines are good and I don't think all wines that aren't natural aren't. So I feel like ultimately yes, I mean I'm looking for balance you know, between the wine and the, and the food. Uh, but where I typically land and where I've always kind of landed has and for for a pretty long time ultimately um, my palate's changed over the years and you know I think that happens but you know I don't like I don't love all the same wines that I did in 2008 or 2009 um, but I, I I will say that by and large most of the people that I represent are you know smaller family wineries I don't have like a case production in my head you know that's that's a, a little bit too much but. You know, usually starts on the farming side for me. Um, I, I typically will buy wines that are, you know, practicing organic or biodynamic. You know, blah blah blah. Um, that's kind of where I begin in the in the cellar. Um, not looking for necessarily like low intervention because that, that's a that's a slippery slope. But I feel like native yeasts are important. 
uh, I feel like um, not, you know, doctoring the wines up too much through techniques or oak or whatever. I'm looking for balance. I'm looking for freshness, um, vibrancy. Um, and I think sometimes the more techniques you, you, you know, you know, discharge at a wine, it isn't always the best thing for the wine. But, you know, what do I know? Well, let's talk about now how that relates to, to your wine. So you started Cutter Cascadia, you, you're, you're, you start with Dolcetto. Uh, was that a, did you want to start with Dolcetto? Was that just because the grapes were available? A little bit of both. I mean, I, above and beyond probably any other country in the world of wine, Italy's kind of where I'm like the, the most, have the, the warmest feelings for, I should say. <laughs> Uh, especially the region that Dolcetto's from, Piedmonte, in the northwest corner, of course. That's um, famous for Nebbiolo, you know, Barolo, Barbaresco, etc. But Dolcetto, Barbera, uh, among a few others, also grow there. And Dolcetto is, has been grown in the valley. They, there's people that grow it down here uh, as well, but um, it also does pretty well in the gorge. Um, and. I'm not sure when the first cuttings of Dolcetto came into the gorge. I'm sure it's probably the 90s or 2000s. So it's not like it has a long tradition or anything mm -hmm. like that. But I think the climate, especially of, of Hood River, and I feel like even like Mosier uh, can ripen it. Uh, and it does really well in that kind of, in those microclimates of the gorge. And the gorge is a whole different animal when it comes to like different terroirs and sites and topography, you know, exact, et cetera. Uh, but Dolcetto does pretty well in Hood River in, in that area. It, it's a challenging variety. It's a really sensitive variety in the, in the vineyard. Um, it, it shows stress pretty easily, which always freaks you out, obviously. Um, but, you know, with, with the baby blue, the, the wine that I make from that block, I'm, you know, I'm always happy with the results of it, or I have been so far. And so, as much as I want to like panic in, in August when everything's turning weird colors, I'm like, what is happening? Uh, it always turns out um, pretty well. Uh, but Dolcetto, yes, uh, is not necessarily my favorite grape variety roll. I don't, I don't have one. It's like, I, don't ask me that question. Like, what's your favorite grape? Okay, just. Um, but uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Uh, but I feel like Dolcetto, the classic examples of it, and I feel like that's where being a psalm helps being a winemaker, um, and vice versa, being a winemaker helps me be a psalm, honestly, uh, nowadays. But I feel like Dolcetto in its classic state, if you will, in Piedmont, uh, is, Dolcetto is, you know, high in tannin, you know, dark in color, has high anthocyanins. Um, and really moderate to low sugar, or pHs, I should say, acids. So it, it, it can be a trick. Uh, it can be a tricky cultivar to grow, but ultimately Dolcetto wants to be consumed young for the most part. There's a, there's a few examples of age-worthy Dolcetto mm -hmm. coming out of Piedmont. Uh, I'm, not I'm not necessarily trying to make that. I'm just trying to make you know, Dolcetto that you can pop you know, immediately and it's not gonna, you're not gonna be like, oh, I should wait 10 years to open that. Um, none of my wines I make in that fashion, um, at least at this point. Um, but Dolcetto is just a happy table wine. You know, it's supposed to be on the table with food 
and it's just supposed to be delicious and the tannins are really what freshens up the wine. It's not the acidity, which a lot of wines like Pinot really rely on acid um, to like freshen the palate, um, at least for me. Uh, so Dolcetto is, is not supposed to be necessarily something that's fussed over. It's just supposed, supposed to be consumed mm -hmm. uh, and not in a thoughtless way necessarily. It's not like, you know, don't, don't appreciate it in any way, but you know, I think it also is a wine that, you know, you can pop on a Wednesday night when you're, when you're making bolognese and penne you know, or whatever. Um, it's easy. It's a pizza wine, right? <laughs> it's pizza wine. So why not? I love pizza. <laughs> uh, take me through the, the sort of the first the first harvest. Uh, you, you've started your label. You uh, you have your you have your vineyard. What about the rest of it? Uh, finding equipment, finding a place, um, having a name, all the kind of detail you had to do to, to make your first vintage. Crap, uh, it's a lot. Um, well, I guess I should start with the name Cutter. Uh, Cutter is it's a reference to my. Uh, kind of hometown in you know Bedford, Indiana, Southern Indiana, uh, which is um, you know about 30 miles south of Bloomington, where which is where IU is, mm -hmm. limestone country. Uh, that's kind of what is traditionally, or in the last in the 20th century, what made it you know gave people jobs, I should say, and that's what my great grandfather did when he came from from Southern Italy in the early 20th century. Um, he was a cutter, he was a carver, he was a stonemason, uh, and worked in the quarries, died in the quarries, literally. Um, but so there's, a, there's been a, you know, a long tradition of like, like stonemasonry in that area, so mm -hmm. cutters. Um, my parents' high school, they were, it was the Bedford Stone Cutters, right? And it's like, you know, that was the mascot. And, but really, it's partially that. Uh, but it's also, have you seen the movie Breaking Away? The, the, it's about Little 500, the bicycle race. Mm -hmm. They call the townies, like the redneck kids from Bloomington, cutters. They're like the, the idiots that are never going to do anything in their life. I, so I kind of identify with that. And I feel like that was just me in a nutshell. It's just I'm like, nobody really had any expectations for me. It was good that I'm, I'm where I'm at, I guess. But. But I'm just, you know, it just kind of, they're kind of screw offs. So, you know, it kind of that irreverency speaks to me. Mm -hmm. And that's what, hence Cutter, Cascadia, mm -hmm. being from Cascadia now. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the name. <clears throat> um, the first year, uh, so 2017 was, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a crazier vintage right out of the gate. Um, you know, I, was, I knew I was going to make the wines here with Evan, um, we have you know, an arrangement um, for me to, to make my wines here and I help him at harvest and help him bottle and I'm the harvest cook now and you know, I, I do more cooking at harvest than I do anything else because my wine's easy. I only have like 450 cases to manage. He's, you know, while he's doing you know, all his crap, I'm making lunch, I'm making meatballs. Um, so that was the arrangement uh, here for the first couple of years, um, and as far as you know, the like how the 2017 vintage was like right out of the gate. So I mean, I mean, I I took that that vineyard and and pruned it, and the little vineyard called Von Floto in in Western Hood River. Um, 
you know, I, I went through the entire growing season, you know, being out there, you know, three, four days a week um, and doing all the, the handwork and the canopy management myself um, and calling the sprays and the spray chemistries, not physically doing the sprays. There's an orchard manager that does that, but I work with him to, to do the sprays, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Uh, but really the story you can't get around the fires of 2017 when you, when I talk about Cutter it's like it's forever like kind of like ingrained into the mythology of the brand um, and that is you know the Eagle Creek fires um, that happened in like it's like our first week of September I want to say mm -hmm. uh, really put you know a mark on that first vintage I mean everything was looking pretty fine until that happened you know um, and uh, it was it was a trip, you know. It was the only fruit I had. It was a little half acre block. It was all dolcetto. I, was, I knew I was going to make a rosé, and I was going to make a red out of the block. Um, <clears throat> but you know, being on the west side of Hood River, um, it, that part of Hood River was pretty affected mm -hmm. by smoke and fires, and you know, it was just like psychedelic out there it was just like you know you can look at the sun through the clouds and it was orange and like red fire and brimstone colors it was it was scary you know uh, it reminded me of being in Los Angeles years ago when there was like wildfires and you know where the it's just really trippy and it was raining ash in Portland and you know out in the vineyards it was you know not easy to work in you know, uh, doing like cluster weights and stuff like that and like a mask and all the stuff. Um, so I made smoked wines the first year. Um, I hadn't, didn't have a choice really. I didn't have anything to blend it with. I didn't ha I certainly wasn't going to dump it. Um, but ultimately I made the wines the way I felt they should have just been made based on what the raw materials were and what I felt like, um, they should be and it you know it resonated with a lot of people that vintage uh, obviously because people still remember the fires in portland uh, and that's where I, I sold all my wine that first vintage was 20 was, was portland um but i mean then to be fair like it was a very polar they were very polarizing wines i feel like whereas like half the buyers just were like i can't do it you know mm -hmm. and half of them like freaked out over it and a lot of people like those wines so um, that was my first vintage, you know, in a nutshell, uh, was fire wine. <laughs> so, so about your, your your sort of vineyard neighbors at that time and the the, the community in that part, what were what were their reactions as, as to the fire the, to the fire and the and the smoke? Well, I mean, I don't really have much connection to the farmers around that. I mean, it's all orchards around me, um, but I'm like a little vineyard inside of that. Um, but. You know, I remember, I think the one thing that stands out to me <laughs> in kind of in the apex of the fires and of like the evacuation warnings and stuff, I remember going out one afternoon on a day that they were under Hood River, that part of Hood River, Odell, I believe was on like stage two evacuation. It was not like get out, it wasn't get out, but it was like get ready to get out. And, <clears throat> you know, Lucia, who's the owner of the property and her and Andy uh, have the house and the vineyards and the orchards. And I pulled up 
to the to the property she was like hosing down the shrubs and the garden and the trees around their house uh, and and said essentially yeah we're under evacuation you know stage two etc uh, and I was like I'm gonna go like you know do cluster weights you know or something like that I'm like all right well let me know if, if you get that call I guess and I got her te you know information down and then have it prior to that um, but and you know you're looking down the like the, the vineyard rows and like can I get out of here if like something happens but nothing happened and like you know being a little you know exaggerating a little bit but um, I feel like we were pretty lucky with the Eagle Creek fires, it could have been so much worse, mm -hmm. as we've seen in Southern Oregon, we've seen in, in Napa, Sonoma. Uh, so I was never in like danger. It was just like, I just smelled like a, I'd been drinking beers in front of a campfire for four days, you know, every time I came home and my car stunk and like I stunk and yeah. The wines, you know, got smoked. <laughs> so they were just sitting out in it for three weeks. Um, but anyway, yeah. So that, that gives the other their preceding vintages a lot to live up to after, after that. So tell me about well, that, yeah. Tell me about the the next year and then sort of gr growing. I swear of. to God, the first time I pulled the rosé for somebody and they're like, oh, it smells smoky. I'm like, shut up. No, it doesn't. There's no fires. Don't don't do this to me right now. Um, so no, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you, that happened more times than I would have liked, you know, and I feel like. You know, 2018 was the vintage that I, I feel like I still had to talk about 2017 because it was still so recent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those wines in 2017 were so unique and unreal that, um, you know, you still, there was still a reference point, you mm -hmm. know, to, to talk to. And, you know, I guess it was more of an icebreaker, I should say. It was like, well, there's no fires this year, so there's that, you know. Um, but, you know. You mentioned you have a, a second vineyard you're working with now. So t tell me about the sort of the, I know you're still brand new business, but tell me about the kind of the evolution so far and, and what, you're, what you're hoping for from the second vineyard as well. Well, in 2018, I was looking for, uh, to pick up a, a vineyard to do white wine, more specifically a skin contact white wine, mm -hmm. you know, orange wine. And I, I don't, I, I guess I was just, I was calling around and like, I'm like, you know, I think the most interesting thing I could do out here could be like Riesling. Nothing else really, uh, you know, I was like looking, you know, grabbing for straws. I didn't really know um, what was what was really around and what was available that would, I kind of want Pinot Gris and I didn't want Chardonnay. Uh, I was like, you know, Riesling's probably the most interesting thing I could probably find out here. And I got connected with these guys uh, at a vineyard off of Steel and Three Mile in the Dalles. Um, uh, Harold Heckey is the, the owner of the vineyard, an old timer that you know, he's in his 90s now. Uh, still like sturdy, like dude, like he's a guy that like, I think he worked for the like urban development in the Dalles back in like 50s and 60s. He was a guy that put up like, you know, power lines in the cherry orchards out there. He was like that guy. But Hillside was planted in 1983 um, with Lonnie Wright of the Pines, 1852. Um, and um, it's a really interesting vineyard. I mean, it's a, it's a magical place. I love that vineyard. I love being in it um, and spending a lot of time in it. And I, I do spend a lot of time in it, so that's good. 
Um, but it was planted in 1983, it's on its own roots, but we can talk about that specifically later. But uh, as far as what attracted me to it, I, I remember just walking the block with um, the foreman, Alejandro Rojas, um, and who lives on the property and does all the kind of management for the vineyard. And I remember just like looking at this vineyard and where it is and it just, it just felt like, you know, well, the Dalles is very different. I should just back up a little bit. The Dalles is very different than Hood River mm -hmm. as far as what the soils are, what the climate's like. You know, you go from 30 to 40 inches of rain in Hood River to 15 inches in the Dalles in 20 miles if you're lucky. Um, so it's windy, it's dry. It's, there's, the soils are really poor, uh, you know, lussy, kind of like sandy, sandy, sandy loams. Uh, they almost just like, just pulverize in your hand, you know, mm -hmm. they're not really deep, heavy clays or anything like that. Uh, it's on a hillside, so it's a full south hit, uh, south by southwest. Uh, so it gets hot. And in a, any normal person probably looks at that and they're like, well, Riesling doesn't make any sense there. <laughs> but I was like, this is perfect, you know, because I feel like all those things that I just mentioned, you know, poor soils, poor, you know, nutrient, there's like no organic matter, um, you know, windy, hot, dry. It has everything that you want in uh, skin contact white wine, mm -hmm. you know. And so I knew from day one it was going to be that. And I mean, I, it was pruned that way. It was managed that way. Uh, from the first moment I stepped in the vineyard, so, um, and that's how I, I still manage it. You know, it's I'm not trying to make Mosul Riesling. I'm not trying to make Alsatian Riesling because I could never do it anyway uh, <laughs> if I tried. So why not make you know something that I think I feel like expresses and you know reverberates the site more than a wine that I can make in a more classic fashion. Mm -hmm. um, so. You talked about the the kind of the own, the own rooted still for for almost forty year old vines. There. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's pretty uncommon, I would imagine, but more so in the Dallas. Uh, you you see more own rooted in like the warmer climates east of the Cascades. Like Walla Walla has a lot of own rooted stuff, um, and in uh, the Dalles also. I mean, they're really sandy soils. You know, the theory's always been that phylloxera can't really get to them, and. and not, not that the phylloxera can't, because now they're starting to see phylloxera, you know, coming in sandier soils, and um, and that's a whole different can of worms. Um, but the bigger problem in the Dalles and climates like that, you know, they're they're more continental than we are in the valley here. Um, so they're really hot, short, intense seasons. The winters are colder. They get a lot of snow. Uh, but, you know, they're just short, intense seasons, like I said. Um, and you, with the propensity for frost, can often come trunk disease like crown gall. And really the only way to, you know, outside of replanting to get rid of crown gall would be to cut everything down to stumps and train suckers up. Um, and 
that because if you're on rootstock and you get crown gall, you got to just rip it out. There's you're, it's kind of a death sentence, you know. If it's if it's advanced enough, I mean, you can learn to live with it in some cases, which I'm learning to live with a lot of trunk disease at my one vineyard right now. But uh, but ultimately, that's that's more of the fear than anything. And often you see like two trunks being trained up. You can cut one down if you need to, and then train another sucker where you still have fruit. So it's on a double line. It's on a essentially a Geneva double curtain or a, a liar system. Uh, so it's almost like a little short pergola in a, in a way. It's a pain in the ass to work. You know, <laughs> the, the vineyard does live up to its name, Hillside, for sure. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious with these with this kind of relationships. Oftentimes, you're when you're when you're buying grapes from someone else, you don't have the ability to be in the vineyard as, as much as it sounds like you are. So, talk about that kind of arrangement for you to kind of do your own. They, they just tolerate me. They uh, I don't know why. Um, I pay my bills, I guess that helps, uh, and they like spray special things for me. And it's like, who is this guy? Because the gall and some some city slick and sommelier coming in and tell me not to spray glyphosate. Um, that's exactly what they sound like. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I asked. Asking's free. That's, that's I think, long story short. Um, and I, while I, I, you know, I'm intending to grow, um, my, my intentions at you know, this point are to, to be very active in any vineyard that I ever source mm -hmm. fruit from. You know, I don't have to do everything. It's impossible for me to do everything at this point, and foolish, you know, you know, when you have... At one vineyard, at the, at the Hood River Vineyard, I pretty much do everything except for the sprays by myself, whereas in the, in the Dallas Vineyard, I have a crew that comes out and helps, and, but I'll be pruning with them, or I'll be in the vineyard, you know, with them at the same time, and they, you know, I kind of give them a little example of how I'd like things to be done, and then they just kind of do it, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm integrated in that way. Um, but I'm, a, I'm an active participant. To, like I said, to call me a farmer would be generous, but at least at this point, you know, that's obviously the goal down the road, but, you know, not for a while probably. So you talked a little bit earlier about your, your sort of winemaking style. Uh, I'm sort of curious if you could define your winemaking philosophy. How, how, how would you say you are, how would you describe yourself as a winemaker? Uh, I don't know. I think ultimately, I want to make wines that you can't ignore. Um, I don't want to make boring wines. I don't want to make wines that are like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's fine. <laughs> you know, that's like the worst reaction. I want to, you know, I, as far as philosophy and, and all that, I mean, I, you know, I used to do spontaneous yeast ferments. Um, you know, no filtration. I haven't filtered a wine yet. Not that I'm like against it per se. Um, sulfur is really the only additive at any point uh, to the wines, uh, and that's just kind of the style uh, that I, I like to make. And that's you know, that's not the only way. It's not the right way. It's just the way that I I feel like I, my wines. I just that's how I've I've kind of come up in the wine world in the buying world. So I feel like. I've been very much inspired by that that world, um, and it's also I feel like the easiest way to do it. I, you know, it's you know I'm pretty lazy. You know, I, I'm more in the vineyards anyway. I don't have time to be in here. I hate being in the cellar. It's so boring. Um, yeah, I'm not going to be a cellar rat for somebody. It's like the nightmare. 
wines that can't be ignored or uh, has that been your general response as you've taken these to market have they have you gotten fairly strong opinions about them I mean I, I don't make enough wine at this point for me to be too cocky about it be like oh yeah well my wines are sold out <laughs> you know yeah it's because you didn't make enough wine idiot you know that's, that's why um, but I mean I feel like they are unique, the labels are unique. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I think being a wine buyer and, and being a SOM helps me sell the wines too because I can talk about the wines, especially my wines, in a really intimate way that I think people can connect to. Um, that, that's really it, I don't really know, honestly. I mean, they, they seem to be doing all right and I feel like people like them. And, yeah, I don't know. People keep asking me to do these interviews. I don't understand it. <laughs> do you run into a, uh, have you run into any kind of issue? Uh, you're not making traditional, you're not making Pinot, you're not making Chardonnay. Yeah. Uh, people respond to Dol Dolcetto? Uh, they, well, so far, yeah. I mean, I also do Riesling, obviously, and then I picked up Zinfandel <laughs> in 2019. Um, you know, I'm always going to be focused in the gorge. You know, I'm not I'm not going to make wine in the Willamette Valley or source from Valley sources. Not that there's anything wrong with the Valley. It's like I have nothing to contribute to the narrative of the Valley. And I feel like the Gorge is, you know, has a lot of potential, not only like with like the, you know, the terroir, but what you can grow on the terroir. I think there's a lot of experimentation that with cultivars that you can't necessarily get ripe in the Valley mm -hmm. um, that I'm that I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. um, specifically. You talked about the, you've you sort of added one variety each year so far. Tell me about, as you look ahead to the future for yourself and your brand, what are you hoping for? What are your goals as you look ahead? My, my next goal would be to get um, a, another white vineyard um, and make a non-skin contact wine out of it. Just make a traditional white wine. Um, I haven't found it at this point. I mean, I'm trying to get some cuttings to do some grafting this year um, from a, a vineyard in, in Hood River or in the Mosier, um, but that hasn't happened yet, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Uh, but that's the goal, uh, is to, if not that, then maybe plant some, some white varieties at the hillside vineyard in the, in the Dalles. Um, they seem to be open to it, so that's kind of next for me, mm -hmm. keep everything centralized. Um, but I'm always looking for something interesting. Um, I just haven't necessarily, this year, 2020, I'm not expanding beyond what I've made in 2019. And then the hope is I can find something for 2021 that'll be online. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, first year was Dolcetto, second year is Riesling, third year, Zen, you know, and then next is um, white, just a, just a white wine. I just want to make a white wine. Do you have an ultimate goal in mind? Uh, own vineyard, own winery, certain size? Uh, is there a, a kind of an indestination? It's. I mean, it, you start fantasizing about silly stuff like that, and it's like, yeah, I want all of it. I, I mean, yeah, why not? Um, I want. I think vineyard probably would be what it would be the ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would probably invest in that first. Um, and, and even if I didn't have 
you know, a structure on the property or had a place to make wine, I could probably, I can piece together that over the next probably five years um, while I get maybe sticks in the ground. Um, but, you know, finding a property uh, and doing all that is still a, a few years away from me, but I think that's probably where I'll start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to have, you know, my own winery or shared space with somebody that was kind of like-minded and have a tasting room. I've always, like, kind of fantasized about doing a like have a you know have a bar at the winery is like your retail space or your place where you can come and buy your wines uh and in restaurant prices but also have have like a dive bar like vibe to it and like have like chili dogs and pork tenderloin sandwiches and like you can get pbr and like a pull of buffalo trace but you could also get like you know, Coulis de Serrant from Nicolas Jolie or like, you know, old Conterno or whatever. Um, but that's just me really just thinking, fantasizing about it and, and wishing that could happen. But I don't know if that, I'll ever get there, but maybe. It seems like that would be a hit. Oh, I have a follow-up oh. for that one. So this vineyard that you would look for first, where would you want it? I feel if I if somebody dropped you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars in my you know my pocket today, I would go looking for the area around Hillside, which is uh, south of the Dalles, that three mile road area. Um, there's a, a big vineyard going up there right now that is beautiful. Uh, I've planted on I think there's going to be sixty acres under vine that Joe Cushman's planting for uh, some people. I forget their names, so whatever. Um, I met them, I'm bad with names. It's a big deal. Anyway, that whole area um, is just magic. I feel like, it, you just feel like you're in Tuscany out there, you know, or, or like high desert in New Mexico or something like that. And if I were to plant, if I had the access and I had the money and I had the opportunity to do it, that's where I'd look first. Because it's so, it's undiscovered. There's no protocols. There's not like, this is what we do here, mm-hmm. you know, so you can do a lot of experimentation. And I think the climate, especially if you get a good, and the soils are interesting, um, I think if you get the right aspects, you can make really special wines uh, out there. So for me, um, but I think the Dalles area is a, an underrated part of the gorge. It's not really technically gorge, it's Columbia Valley because it's on the edge of, you know, the mm-hmm. Columbia Gorge AVA, but it's, it's the gorge, whatever. Um, but I feel like that area, along with the number of different terroirs in, in the gorge, need their own AVAs. I feel like Mosher Hills, I feel like Hood River, I feel like Underwood, and I feel like the Dalles all deserve their own mm-hmm. sub-appellations. And I feel like, for me, the wines that I want to, like the grapes I want to plant and make wine from, I feel like that area could be really compelling mm-hmm. uh, to do it in. I was just going to ask you about that. Uh, grapes you're interested in working with beyond what you already have. Is there a certain grape out there you're super excited to do something with? Not everything. Yes, there's a million of them. But, you know, not all of them are available. And, you know, that's part of the problem. Uh, I, I feel like in that, in that Dow's area, I think varieties like Mediterranean varieties uh, will do really well uh, from reds, I think, like Alianico. I feel like I can see myself planting Alianico at some point in, in a warmer site. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like Mulvedra could do well. I feel like um, for whites, I think Fiano, maybe Ferment from Hungary could be interesting. Um, and 
that site at Hillside specifically, I feel like it's tricky because you, I feel like you need something that will, um, that's, that's gonna not, it's not gonna be too hot for it, you know? I mean, there's, you don't necessarily, I mean, there's Chardonnay in that vineyard and I think it does okay, but it wouldn't be the first thing I'd plant necessarily there. And not to criticize them for planting Chardonnay, but I feel like things like Fiano or like Assyrtico or things of that nature could be interesting in that, in that climate um, uh, as well. But yeah, we all have a wish list of things that you can't get, and, you know. I think probably at the top of that list would be Norella Mascalese uh, from Sicily. That would be, I think, if I could have my druthers uh, and get that planted at some time in my life, that would be, that uh, is a big goal actually. You know, it'll eventually be available and I think that area will be perfect for it. It's like your legacy grape. Well, I don't think about stuff like that too much. But. So you, you moved up to, to Portland in, in 2007. I'm curious what your sort of initial impressions were of, of the Oregon wine industry at, at that point. Um, I feel like it was still, I wouldn't say finding its identity. I think th things have changed quite a bit in Oregon wine in the last 10, 12 years. Um, I think people have are more experimental now. I think there's, you know, I think people are drinking wines out of the region more now uh, than I think it was maybe, I don't wanna say isolated then, cause that's not true. It'd be, that's a little misleading, but um, I feel like it was just, you know, it wasn't as exciting as it is now. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like now is there's a lot of vibrancy and a lot of energy um, in all different kinds of, uh, Oregon wine, not only the valley, but but valley specifically. There's a lot of cool things happening down here, and a lot of great younger producers coming up. Um, but you still, you know, have the old guys still doing great stuff, also. So I, I feel like it's just a good time to be a wine drinker uh, if you like Oregon wine, um, because it's it's there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy and you know there's you know there's a lot going on here for sure and, and like not to say that it wasn't then but i think everything that was going on then was building to kind of where we are now and i feel like we can even go further uh, as far as experimenting with different cultivars whether it's in the willamette valley or in the gorge or wherever mm -hmm. um, so i think that's the next 10 years will be even maybe more exciting than what we've seen prior to now you know what do you think the industry will look like then in, in 10 years? What, 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 what will have changed at that point? We're growing more Syrah in the Willamette Valley probably, sadly. Um, but I think you're going to see more warm climate varieties. I mean, it's already happening, obviously. Mm -hmm. you, know? you know, you look at a warmer Appalachian like Yamhill Carlton, you're like, oh, man, you maybe need to start grafting your Pinot over to something else. You know, especially some of those West hits mm -hmm. get really cooked. Um, it could be, there could be an opportunity though to, to find something that's really unique and that, that does really well in those spots. Um, not singling out Yamhill Carlton or anything like that. But I feel like, you know, there's gonna be more varieties uh, planted um, that are gonna be suited, sadly, to global warming. Um, and I feel like the gorge is gonna be the same way. And that's where it's tricky. When you're planning stuff now, you're like, you gotta think, you know, what, what's it gonna be like? Is it gonna be, is the world gonna be two degrees hotter 
you know what's it what what's our typical harvest going to be you know i feel like we haven't had 20 2019 you know aside which is we had rain you know it was crazy it wasn't like a hot summer but i feel like the last 10 years it was like the opposite of what it used to be like you know we're in the 80s or the 90s like every 10th vintage or so uh, was a hot vintage, mm -hmm. whereas conversely now it's one in ten vintages is going to be a cold vintage mm -hmm. or a classic vintage, whatever you want to call it. Um, so I feel like the biggest change will probably have to do with what's being planted in new vineyards mm -hmm. and what the trends are in, in, in the world of wine is going to contribute that, but it's also going to be people looking at their vines and be like, wow, this, this variety maybe doesn't work here anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be some sad realities of, of that um, but also opportunities but you know that global warming is you know is really going to be affecting the wine world in, a, in I think in a pretty negative way ultimately in the in the next 50 years um, unless we get our act together but that's it's another podcast or another interview right yeah that's that's a that's a pretty big topic to dive down there. yeah um, I'm curious if there, in addition to that, if there's anything else on the horizon that concerns you for the industry as a whole. Are there other things that you're seeing that worry you as you look ahead uh, for, the, for the wine industry future here? I feel like, I mean, the elephant in the room for me are chemicals like glyphosate. I feel like they should just ban it from live. I think it's just get out of there. Maybe they're in the process of it. I don't know if they are. Um, I feel like getting some of the you know, I, I don't, I'm not super hardcore about like people using some of the, the powdery mildew sprays, but I feel like things like Roundup are really, are being proven that they're really bad for people and then you shouldn't spray them and they're really bad for vines and they're really bad for soils and et cetera. Um, I feel like things like that um, would be nice if, you know, they were eradicated. It's probably not going to happen. There's too much money involved and too much interest for people like, you know, uh, for Roundup to, you know, to get banned in, in, in viticulture. I just wish people would stop using things like that. You know, it's hard to stop because Roundup is easy. It works and you do it once. And I understand why people do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when you look at the other side of the balance of the scale, it's not, for me, it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not worth poisoning your employees uh, and, and maybe even people that drink the wine. I mean, they're finding that there are glyphosate levels in wine mm -hmm. uh, that in vineyards that you know, I've, I've heard, I've seen that in California, but I'm not quoting a peer-reviewed paper or anything like that but you know uh, at any rate I feel like that's the the boogeyman that we should just get rid of once and for all uh, and uh, that's kind of the arrangement I have with all my vineyards is like no pre-emergence no glyphosate uh, that's like step one mm -hmm. you know um, so I've got a little band of like you know organically managed uh, vines in a in a sea of what would ultimately be live they're not live certified but they would essentially be live mm -hmm. um, but that's for me is spraying more reasonably more uh, ecologically um, I think that not only will help with soils uh, and doing maybe natural adjustments to soils for for nitrogen, for example, you know, using 
composts and you know different you know organic you know means for for nitrogen as opposed to putting in like ammonium in in the soils and stuff like that and you know, I feel like that's another part of it building soils uh, regenerative viticulture farming whatever you want to talk about I feel like is the future and I feel like if you're not getting on that train now you're going to be left behind and you're ultimately I feel like going to be left behind from a consumer standpoint as well I think people uh, especially younger people uh, it means it means a lot more people give a shit about it you know and they should and I feel like people that are going to ignore that or just have this you know oh well you know you don't know what you're talking about this is the way we've always done it we've this you don't know anything you know uh, and just doing things the conventional way um, I think they're going to become dinosaurs. I think they'll go away. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like the trend is to be more of a steward of the environment now more than ever. And I think it's just going to increase, at least it should. And I feel like Oregon's always been at the forefront of that. I feel like mm -hmm. you know, there's more biodynamic wineries here than anywhere, any other AVA uh, in, the, in the country. And there's a reason that you know, there's a groundswell of that uh, because it's been going on a long time. People have been, Oregon's been always at the forefront for you know natural viticulture or holistic viticulture, whatever you want to call it. And I feel like it's, I don't know, maybe coming more mainstream now. And it's, it's, it's easier to do now than it was mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Especially if we're getting hotter vintages now. It's certainly a lot easier to spray when it's hot all the time. And it's like, would you prefer mildew or would you prefer sunburn? It's like, that's the age old question. But ultimately, uh, I feel like it just people are getting better at doing it, mm -hmm. you know, and there's more people that I think consumer wise are going to demand it and are demanding it already. Uh, like buyers like myself or other buyers, it's like it's kind of a prereq mm -hmm. at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like you don't be a jerk to the environment. That's it. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be like all the way hardcore BD with like gnomes in your vineyard or anything like that. But, you know, I feel like pumping the brakes on some of the herbicides and, and, and you know, building soil and, and using cover crops. And I think it's all part of, you know, soil health and, and, and doing the right thing for the environment. But also I think the wines as well. That's just my theory. Like low to no-till farming and, and all those things. So if someone were to, were to come to you and, and, and say they wanted to be in the Oregon wine industry, uh, what would your words of wisdom to them be? I don't know. It depends on how much money they have. <laughs> you know, if they're like some regret like me, I would be like, well, um, I, I think learning, I think there's a great uh, tradition in wine, in the world of wine, not just Oregon, uh, but anywhere of you know mentorship and apprenticeships um, and learning from people that have more experience than you do and listening uh, and not you know thinking you know everything so soon I think getting your ass kicked at harvest a couple times helps you know I think you want I would probably recommend doing a harvest somewhere honestly first and see if you got the bug or not it's either you will or you won't I think after that first harvest um, and, you know, for me, it's, yeah, you know, keep learning, you know, whether that's go to school or not, I don't think there's necessarily you have to do one or the other. Um, but, you know, ask a lot of questions and, you know, take notes and, and 
continue to learn as you mature. You're never going to know everything, you know. You, you can experiment. Experimentation for me is the only thing that's consistent year to year in how I, I farm or how I make the wines. So I feel like I would pass that on as well. And that's what makes it more interesting anyway, you know. Give a shit. Be enthused. Be passionate about something, you know. Okay, so all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything I don't think so. I didn't cover all the bases. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time today, sharing your stories and, and, your, and your thoughts with us. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.